This is a good step. Is this the ultimate step? Are we done now? Is the Middle East solved? No, of course not. It is the week of August 24, and welcome to episode 39 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and the former chief counsel and senior advisor at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Lauren Dealey-Mahler, president of Dealey-Mahler Strategies, and former director of legislative Affairs at the National Security Council, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Before getting started, I have two programming notes. The first is that we will be releasing the podcast on Wednesdays instead of Thursdays. We hope you enjoy hearing the conversations a day earlier. The second is that while we will continue to have special guests join us, we are happy to announce that Lauren is a permanent co host alternating episodes with Jody Herman. We're excited to have her analysis on a more regular basis and hope you are too. So let's get to it. A few days ago, President Trump announced that Israel and the United Arab Emirates had come to an agreement to begin diplomatic relations. This makes UAE only the third Arab nation after Egypt and Jordan to open ties with the Jewish state. Dana, can you lay out the significance of this announcement? What role did Israeli settlements play and what role did Iranian aggression in the region play? Great questions, Les. So first of all, what they announced was an agreement to normalize their relations. And as part of that normalization, they will at some point presumably create diplomatic relations, exchange embassies, send ambassadors to each other's capitals, etc. Iran and Iranian aggression played a huge role in this for years now, long preceding the Trump administration and even preceding the Obama administration, Iran's multiple threats to the Middle East, its pursuit of a nuclear weapon, its support for terrorism, its ballistic missile program, its very aggressive cyber attack, cyber program, etc., caused strategic convergence in the threat landscape between Gulf countries and Israel. So for a while now, we have seen that actually the Iranian threat has overridden other reasons for Arab countries to not pursue some sort of relationship with Israel. And for a long time, we've described those relationships as under the table. So pretty robust and extensive security and intelligence cooperation, some minimal business and private sector interactions. We know there's also some cooperation in the cyber realm, homeland security, etc. But what is so significant about the Emirati announcement about normalization is other than Jordan, who made peace with Israel in 1994, and Egypt, who made peace with Israel in 1979. This is the first Arab government in over 20 years to make peace. And given the extensive development of the Emirati economy, there are just tremendous opportunities for the Emirati government and the Israeli government to demonstrate to the rest of the region the benefits of peace. And Israeli settlements played a huge role. The impetus for this has been the long-anticipated unilateral annexation by the Israeli government of parts of the West Bank, which would basically make it impossible for the Palestinians to ever have a state of their own. And most Arab countries came out in opposition to this prospect of unilateral annexation, as did most European countries. The only government who signaled their support was the Trump administration here in the United States. And so what the Emiratis did at one point is signal that if the Israelis go ahead with unilateral annexation, any possibility for normalizing relations becomes an impossibility. But if the Israelis committed to not unilaterally annex parts of the West Bank, which would be part of a future Palestinian state, then everything is on the table for expanding relations in that that's exactly what happened. So Jamil, let's go 
back to the Iran portion of that answer. Dana talked about the strategic convergence of the threat landscape. So I take that as code for President Trump was right to double down on U.S. alliances with Israel and Sunni Arab states. What say you, sir? Well, I certainly think that, you know, returning to our traditional allies and not trying to make common cause with Iran is the right move. That being said, I think that what is actually more astounding about the Trump play here is that the sort of thing that nobody thought was likely, which is that the U.S. would lean heavily towards Israel and that would address some of the problems of the Middle East actually has come to pass, right? The Trump administration has been almost, you know, 100% in line with the Israeli position on every issue. And that has shifted the dynamic, permitting the potential annexation of the West Bank, which, as Dana points out, was the straw that broke the camel's back and got the UAE back there to make the deal. Now, whether that's a long-term sustainable approach or not, I think is still questionable. But I think nobody expected that that would be the outcome of the position that we've taken on Israel and Middle East peace. But I think most people thought that the Middle East peace plan was sort of a joke, which, you know, in large part, it's not realistic, right? But it did shift the balance in a way that somehow jarred something loose. Now, again, not clear that long term this, this thing is sustainable. I was in Israel a couple of years ago, and I've been in Israel five, six times for work. And this is the first time I really was despondent about the peace process. That it didn't look like there were real opportunities for peace because the U.S. has taken such a one-sided position. You know, most administrations have been very favorable to Israel, but have sort of maintained something of a balance. This administration hasn't done that, and it raised concerns for me. And yet, here we are, you know, with what is at least an unprecedented situation, the first time, as Dana points out, in almost 20 years that an Arab state has made peace with Israel. So a very interesting thing. And by the way, don't buy the Biden line of, oh, we started this thing, and this is all really our responsibility. That's a joke. Lauren, that sounds like a great segue to you. How does Joe Biden think about this in your estimation? I'm not asking for the official line, but in your estimation, Biden was the vice president to Barack Obama. Obama, of course, negotiated the Iran nuclear deal, which for the first time in a long time brought Iran into a conversation about balancing the region. Maybe a concert of the Middle East could have resulted, if you will. Does a Biden administration go back to the Obama approach of trying to bring Iran in, or does it go down the approach? approach of the Trump administration doubling down on support for traditional U.S. allies, Sunni Arab states, and Israel? Where do they go? I think that's a great question. And I will double down on your statement that I am not speaking for the official campaign and what they are doing, just to make that very clear ahead of time. But I think that the one thing that I can agree with that Jamil was saying, other than the slightly confusing definition of the word unprecedented, was that this is a good step. Is this the ultimate step? Are we done now? Is the Middle East solved? No, of course not. But taking this step of normalizing relations among the countries gets us that much closer to the overall objective that every administration can agree on of peace and stability across the region. That's what we're aiming for. And different administrations have taken different approaches to which parts of that they are going to emphasize in order to reach that objective. And I think that the Trump administration, as you were saying, has shifted back to a hyper laser focus on Israel, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, which are likely very domestically politically driven. But that has produced at the end of the day, like you said, to everyone's great surprise, this really 
commendable step of having this agreement where some of those things, as Dana was describing, those relations that have been kind of under the table can now be out in the open and can develop more and hopefully lead to more agreements and stability across the region. I think the Biden administration would look favorably upon a situation where conversation and engagement is increasing among countries that have previously been unwilling to have those kinds of conversations. So do I think this binds anyone's hands or forces anyone's hand to specifically lean towards, you know, speaking with one set of countries versus another? No, I don't. I think it's a good step that we can all agree on, but I think the elephant's still in the room. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict is still out there. And approaching that in an environment where there is an air of increased normalization and willingness to have a conversation is good for anybody. Let me ask all three of you, and we'll go around the horn. Dana, you go first. We're hearing positive things from some other countries in the region. Oman, Bahrain have sent out some messages that are fairly positive about what's happening. One has to wonder, given the role of UAE over the past few years and the role of Saudi Arabia and the linkages between their leaders, whether or not Saudi Arabia itself, you know, the location of the two holiest places in Islam, an incredibly significant country for a variety of reasons, could be next to follow UAE in recognizing the state of Israel. Is that plausible in the next few weeks? Dana? No. Jamil? No. Lauren? Let's make it three. No. All right. I'm going to go ahead and say I think it's plausible that it happens and we get an October surprise that could significantly impact the November election here in the United States. If that were to happen, it'd be tectonic. Tell us how it happens. Play it out for us, since you have a theory of the world. I don't know how it happens, but I note that the effective leader of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, is a risk taker, is willing to break some China, not always in a good way, sometimes in a good way. His record on particular human rights cases has been bad. The Jamal Khashoggi uh, example is item number one. There are others that are very concerning. It's balanced by him taking progressive steps in other areas, including on women's rights and downplaying the role of the previously very empowered clerical caste in Saudi Arabia. So I think it is not beyond the pale to think about the possibility that he will make a bold move and begin talks with Israel or indicate that he's willing to do so. He's got this idea for a super modern city in the northwest of Saudi Arabia, very close to Israel. Some linkages with Tel Aviv, with Jerusalem would make a ton of sense. So there's a logical basis. And I just think kind of based on behavior, it's not crazy to think that this could happen. Dana, go ahead. So I think, first of all, just going back to some things that Jamil said, let's not reward or praise the Trump administration for creating a crisis that then created an opening for the Emiratis to look like leaders in the region by preventing unilateral annexation in exchange for normalizing relations, where in reality, the relations were already pretty extensive. So when you're thinking about each of these governments in the Middle East and their calculations vis-a-vis normalizing relations with Israel, the question is, one, what can they get from the normalizing of relations with Israel that they can't already get from the under table relations? And then number two, if they're okay getting everything they want from the relationship with Israel under the table, the question is, what can they get from the United States to take that relationship on top of the table? And when it comes to Saudi Arabia, they are very detailed observers of U.S. political scene and surely recognize that this is not a set reelection and it's uncertain what's going to happen in November. And for them, they 
they know that they have a challenge with Democrats because, as Jamil said, there's issues with killing journalists, human rights abuses, despite the fact that there have been major modernizing moves by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. So if I were advising the Saudis, I would say if you're thinking about doing this anyway, you should wait until you see what happens after the election, because if it's a Biden administration, you're probably going to need to smooth things over with Democrats. And this is probably a decent way to start. See, it's interesting. I was skeptical of the ability to get this thing done now, but I actually think that given what Dana just said, that actually cuts in favor of them doing the deal now because they'll get more out of a Trump administration than they would out of Biden administration. So if they're going to make a play, now's the time to make the play, I think. But what is that more that they can get from a Trump administration between October and November or October and January? Is it foreign military sales? They don't move that fast. Is it being quiet on human rights? They already got that. So what is it? Well, that's, that's a great question. That's why I was skeptical because I couldn't think of what they might get, right? The Emiratis having done the deal for the land, right? For the West Bank annexation. The question is what else is on the table? And maybe there's some larger part of that of that deal. Maybe there's a foreign military, says, as you say. They do it, by the way, till January. They don't have to, only till November. They've got till January to do it, whatever they have. So it's a few more months, right? And you could see the administration committing to a deal and getting the transaction moving such that it would be hard for the Biden administration to unwind it. And so I think that's a potential play. The other piece of this, right, is what do they get and how do they get it and when do they get it? But I think they may have a better deal with the Trump administration than Biden administration. Wouldn't doing the deal now also help them hedge if there is a Biden administration? In other words, a Saudi-Israeli relationship could box out a redux of the Iran nuclear agreement. The thing that they get is continued close allyship with the United States. Well, I'm not sure how much of a Saudi-Israeli relationship would would change the Iran deal situation with respect to the Biden administration. Um, I do want to, by the way, address one point. Joe Biden sounds a lot like Al Gore. You know, Al Gore invented the internet. Joe Biden invented Middle East peace, right? It was all there before, right? Uh, Dana's right that this relationship was stronger than it might have seen in public. But the fact of making the relationship public and doing it to be seen to be doing it and having actual diplomatic ties, that is a game changer. And Barack Obama did not, could not have gotten it done. Okay, that's the final word on UAE and Israel. Let's talk about West Africa. There was a coup in Mali there a few days ago. Uh, Mali's an interesting country for a lot of reasons. There are groups there, armed militias that are associated with global terror networks that are of concern to the United States. We've got troops in Niger to deal with this problem, which is right next door to Mali. The French have thousands of troops in Mali. There are even more UN-affiliated peacekeepers there. Jamil, you were in Mali with our old boss, Senator Corker, years ago go. You were on the ground. Tell us what's at stake there. Look, I mean, obviously, Mali has long been a hotbed of Al-Qaeda and other militancy. We saw uh, back in the 2011-2013 timeframe, the takeover by a part of, by Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb of a part of Mali. Uh, there are a number of other Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorist groups operating in the area. So it's obviously a huge concern. And, you know, this military coup is not something uh, anybody wants to see. Obviously, the U.S. has responded and, and raised concerns about it, as have the French. The French are much more involved in Mali than we have generally taken a backseat to that former colonial power. When Senator Corker and I were there, we actually saw the French Foreign Legion on the ground at the airport there. They do wear very interesting shorts, so I'm not sure I would recommend the French Foreign Legion to anybody, but uh, they were very noticeable there hanging out on the runway, helping the Malian military forces respond to the threat of AQIM. And by the way, they were able to successfully push AQIM out of Timbuktu shortly after we were there. But these are concerning times in what is an important part of the world. You know, the American public 
tends to pay very little attention to Africa generally and to West Africa in particular. And yet there are real interests that we have there in the region, not limited only to terrorism. Some of our closest allies in the region are in that part of Africa. People always think about Kenya and Tanzania, where actually my family is from, and you know sometimes Djibouti and Somalia, but uh, because of the challenges there. But the West African nations are very important to the United States also. And, and Liberia, for example, is one of our longest ties and is closest of all the countries in Africa probably to the United States bar, maybe South Africa. Lauren, a few months ago, the administration floated the idea that it was going to do a review of U.S. troop commitments in Africa. A lot of people were concerned about the possible impact on the Sahel and security there. My sense is it's a little bit overblown at the end of the day. It's sensible to have a review, identify what our strategic interests are, kind of think about the long term and how we position ourselves. But there is this kind of lingering question about how the administration has handled this issue, which, as Jamil points out, is really outside of most people's radar, you know, under their radar screen. What's your assessment of the way this administration in particular has handled events in Mali, Niger, and the Sahel more broadly? Well, I think that while it is a little bit more sort of off the scope for most normal people, I think, you know, who are going about their lives, not including those of us in that normal category who actually look at things in deep water all the time. But I think that the review of troop commitments and strategy in the region is something that the Trump administration floated along with lots of other ideas about reviewing where troops are located. We just want to review. We like to review things. Let's all talk about where our troops are and why and get everybody in those regions and everyone else who pays attention to those regions all up in arms and flustered about what we may or may not do to change that. I think that specifically is related to Mali. There is a lot as Jamil was saying, in that region that is strategic to our security interests. There's a lot that has been going on for a long time and will continue to go on and our commitment and our various in different ways with security cooperations and partnerships and trainings and different things that we do in the region are vital to our long-term security interests. And I think that with the specific situation playing out as it is right now, that it's right to suspend our engagements with the military. You know, you don't reward bad behavior with ongoing diplomatic relations and interactions. And so I think that taking time to have a review, fine. I think the real question is going to be, what are they going to do with it later on? Is it going to actually turn into something that we need to legitimately have a conversation about? But until then, they review a lot of stuff. Dana, let's talk about the region a little bit more. Of course, four U.S. troops were killed in Niger a couple of years ago, got a little bit of attention. Uh, A lot of policymakers, evidently, particularly on the Hill, were not super aware that U.S. troops were in harm's way in West Africa, and it kind of brought this issue to the head a little bit. If you go a little further back, the chaos in Libya that's been going on for years since the fall of Muammar Gaddafi, the civil war there, a lot of weapons are coming from Libya into North Africa into the Sahel, into places like Mali, and causing a lot of trouble, a lot of instability, probably seeing the results of that now. Can you talk about how this fits into maybe not the Africa context, but the Middle East context, the North Africa, Mediterranean? How concerned should we be about events in Mali? It's a really good question. And I think where we start is that what we're seeing in Africa actually fits into this paradigm that's very in vogue to talk about in D.C., which is forever wars and how to end United States involvement in forever wars. So, Les, when you talked about the Niger incident and the 
killing of the three U.S. soldiers. What was shocking about it is not just that so many people, both in Congress and in the wider American public, were unaware that we had U.S. soldiers deployed in parts of West Africa. There's general awareness that we have U.S. soldiers deployed all over the world in fragile states, mostly doing what we call advise and assist and developing partner capacity of local forces to fight Al-Qaeda-linked or Islamic State-linked extremists um, and violent extremist organizations. And all of that is done under the 2001 post-9-11 authorization for the use of military force. And that is very, very alarming for so many members of Congress who have tried to update that authority and members of the wider American public who are unaware that an authorization that Congress voted on to specifically go after the Taliban in Afghanistan is now being used to deploy soldiers in places as far away as Niger or to support other militaries in doing counterterrorism operations like the United States has provided support to France for its counterterrorism operations in Mali. And so there, the idea is the United States doesn't need to be sending our own young men and women into every single context, but we can use our massive and impressive military capabilities to support other militaries and supporting other local militaries in fighting violent extremist groups and Al-Qaeda-linked terrorists on the ground. And so this connects, last to your original question, the slow-burning crisis in Libya that especially in Africa, fragile states without sophisticated governance, economic opportunities, lack of inclusive opportunities for social and political participation in everyday society leads to communal violence, which opens space for the proliferation of violent extremists. And also in that mix are all sorts of things that come along with activities by armed groups and militias like trafficking in persons, transnational crime, massive flows of migrants and refugees coming up through Africa, through the Sahel to Libya and then getting on ships and going toward Europe. All of these are, are illicit networks which endanger human life, endanger economies, and threaten the security of U.S. partners and allies, for example, in Europe. And the ongoing discussion is how we can best address this. So let me ask the group, all three of you, do we think a Biden administration would take a substantially different approach to events in Mali, to terrorism concerns than the Trump administration has taken? Lauren, I'll let you go first. I'm not sure there's a major difference in what the Trump administration is doing in that particular region as regards to what was going on before in counterterrorism efforts. They've talked a lot, but don't appear to have really rearranged the deck chairs much. So I think it's still a legitimate area. It still warrants a lot of our attention and our focus and our efforts. And I don't see that changing. I think the answer is no, there won't be a lot of change, but I'm not sure it got a lot of attention in the prior administration, got enough attention in this administration, and will get enough attention in the Biden administration. I actually worry that across the board, we have been bereft of responsibility when it comes to confronting Al-Qaeda around the globe, particularly in this region. While we have been aggressive in other regions, we've continued to pull back. This administration has continued that policy, as Dana and Laura were talking about, this idea of ending all endless wars. And I see nothing about the administration that would change that approach. And that is very concerning to me because, frankly, what has kept al-Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State away from us is fighting them on other battlegrounds and not our own. So just to take a step back, you've actually heard from officials in the Trump administration, like the National Defense Strategy, which talked about great power competition and the real strategic level threat to the United States being 
China and the Chinese challenge across multiple spectrums, both military, security, cyber, economic, trade, etc. And in that context, there was a call for a review of U.S. forces deployed in the Africa Command Theater in Africa based on this concept of should we be putting capabilities and people into the Africa Theater if we're saying that the strategic level threat is China. And there was tremendous pushback because the idea is that what we do in Africa is pretty light footprint and pretty low cost. And a lot of what we do is by working with other groupings, whether it's the West African grouping ECOWAS, whether it's United Nations, United Nations peacekeeping, whether it's with other partners in Europe, etc. And the Obama administration also attempted something like this. They called it the Asia Pacific uh, pivot and then rebalance. And again, the idea was that the real challenge, the real security threat is China and Russia. And so Africa, while it remains important, is not critical or a strategic level challenge. And the way that we invest or pursue our interests in Africa is not by deploying massive numbers of forces and capabilities, but by trying to partner with others to address it collectively. So I think where you would see a difference is not that a Biden administration is going to say, yes, the Africa theater is the preeminent strategic threat. So we're going to focus and shift and pull forces out of the Middle East and pull forces out of Europe. Forget about China. Africa's where all the action is. But I do think you'd see a reinvigorated attention to regional, sub-regional, and international groupings who are also interested in addressing endemic problems in Africa, in the security and the economic and the political space, and maybe more of an interest in in contributing assistance in some of those areas. Although, again, in a post-COVID environment where focus is going to be on spending U.S. taxpayer dollars at home, it's not clear to me how much extra additional funding And a Biden administration would even have to spend in a space like Africa or to assist Mali in its post-coup recovery. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think in a Biden administration, you'd actually see less engagement in West Africa for the reason that you would have a more competent linkage between national messaging and the national security bureaucracy. So if the administration actually decided to do a review of U.S. commitments in the region, they would find that these were not super high priority and they would shift resources elsewhere. I think the current administration, while it talks about a review, is almost sclerotically incapable of acting on it. And even if they identify Mali as a lower priority item, which is not entirely illogical. They lack the ability to persuasively and convincingly shift resources elsewhere. Okay, let's talk about what's going on in Belarus before we're done today. So there's spectacular demonstrations going on in Minsk, capital Belarus. People there are concerned about the legitimacy of an election a couple of weeks ago in which Alexander Lukashenko was supposedly reelected by a huge landslide. He's been in charge of Belarus for 26 years. He's called the last dictator of Europe. It's clear that there was a lot of fraud going on and that there is nothing remotely resembling legitimate democracy in that country. And finally, the Belarusian people have had it. They're demonstrating even folks at places like defense weapons factories, which would normally be big Lukashenko supporters, are yelling cat calls at him. It's a very dicey situation. And it's possible that between now in the time we publish the podcast, things will have changed in Belarus. But Lauren, can you talk about how this matters for the U.S.? Belarus is a tiny country, less than 10 million people. On a good day, it's completely dominated by Russia, doesn't really want to join NATO. It's not Western-oriented. It's Russian-oriented. But there is this deep concern among the people there on democracy. How should we think about it? I think we think about it through the lens of knowing that democracy is good. Democracy, period. Promoting democracy and growing democracies around the world and strengthening democracies around the world makes us all safer. That is in our national security interests. 
full stop. I think that when you have a state, particularly that is a border state to Russia, then that question becomes even more important. Promoting democracy and strengthening democracy is even more relevant. And when you see a place that is maybe on paper a democracy, but where, funny enough, the same guy's been winning election and landslide for 26 years, you know, the question of whether or not that is legitimate as a democracy is a question. But I think that it is in our interests to have a stable, strong democratic government uh, in that country. And what we're seeing now with the protests and the government response to it and the people's response to the government for the first time, not just being attacked and moving on, but fighting back and pushing back. And it, it just seems to be escalating further and further that the concern for us is that the instability raised by those actions uh, will provide an opening for Russia to intervene um, and to strengthen its footprint, its influence, its you know military presence in a region where we just assume not have it. Um, and I think that as a long-term strategic concern for us is the ultimate end state that we would like to avoid. Um, so I think there, as you look at it on a map, doesn't seem that big of a deal. You look at it as a democracy. Okay, they check the box. But overall, I think the strategic security interests of the United States and our allies are best served when democracies are strong, particularly in that region. And we're not providing an easy foothold for Russia to expand its influence. So Jamil, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo issued a statement supporting democracy in Belarus, critical of what Lukashenko is doing. Uh, his deputy, Steve Began's on his way to the Baltics, where he's going to talk to regional officials and the Russians about what's happening there. Is the Trump administration doing enough here? You know, I wish they were doing more. Let's be honest. Um, the administration has not been particularly aggressive when it comes to Eastern European nations that are under a threat from Russian influence. And Belarus is no different. Lukashenko is obviously somebody that we don't think should be in office and, and frankly, who is problematic for U.S. interests in the region. And obviously what's happening in that country is a disaster. So it's great that the Secretary Pompeo has spoken out. It's great that he's sending being into the region. But the truth is that in most administrations, the president will be out there talking about this stuff. The U.S. government will be more forward-leaning would be imposing measures, taking more direct action rather than just sort of sending somebody to for a uh, for a foreign tour, um, albeit in light of COVID. And so, um, I want to I would love to see more action by this administration. But again, this is a longer story of a history of failures. Uh, the Obama administration failed to respond to Crimea and the Russian intervention there. That was a completely ineffective effort. The Congress did press them and impose sanctions. This administration has failed to respond to Russian aggression when it came to our elections. Again, Congress got involved and imposed sanctions. Still haven't done enough. The Belarus is just one more example, like Hong Kong, where we have not done enough to support uh, the cause of democracy and freedom around the globe. And uh, this has been a now coming on uh, almost over a decade problem, uh, two administrations of different parties. Uh, and it just seems like more to, more to come, regardless of who wins the election uh, in November. Dana, what's your take on Belarus? Is this an opportunity for Joe Biden to distinguish himself from the Trump administration? So first of all, I think it's a little rich to blame what's going on in Belarus because the Obama administration didn't stand up to Russia for its actions in Crimea. If you want, we can go back to the George W. Bush administration and its failure to push back on Russia's actions in Georgia. So this is a recurring pattern. It's not unique to one party. It's not unique to one 
one administration, even though I know it's it's Jamil's favorite activity and hobby to beat up on the Obama administration. So I just need to say that at the outset. If you look at the Biden statement on Belarus and you look at statements that have been both bipartisan, like the chairman and the ranking member together from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, almost everyone likes to pay good lip service to aligning themselves with the protesters to the right to free and fair, credible elections, the right to protest without fear of abuses or pushback by security forces in the country. They blame the Lukashenko government for arresting protesters, for arresting independent journalists, for not allowing the OSCE to um, have an actual election monitoring mission, all of these things. You don't really see people on the right or the left calling for anything more robust than expressing solidarity with the protesters and, and, and reaffirming the right of all people to vote in free and fair elections for their government. Um, so a Joe Biden administration, I think, again, the nuance would be a preference to work with like-minded allies and partners to support what Lauren talked about initially, which is democracy, that democracy is a stable form of government and that people at the end of the day want their vote to matter in open, free, fair, credible elections, have confidence that when they vote, that there is a peaceful transition of power and that there's rule of law in their countries. And for a long time, Republicans and Democrats together, especially in Congress, have funded those kinds of programs through things like the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute, the Institution for the Foundation of Electoral Systems. All of these things have traditionally had bipartisan support. And it's only in recent years that you've seen a pulling back of those kinds of programs by the Trump administration. So it seems to me there is a huge opportunity opportunity here for Joe Biden and or the president really to talk about exactly that, about how in what is essentially a very Russia-affiliated country with people who have historical ties to the Russian people, how they can embrace democracy, how they can be an example for the good things that can happen in a place like Russia. This is a huge threat to Putin. And I think we're underestimating how relevant this is for his domestic support. He's been in power for almost as long as Lukashenko. He's even sketchier in his manipulation of democracy. If we could promote a good outcome in Belarus would really undermine Vladimir Putin in Russia and his ability to mess with our interests in the region. Jamil. And look, to be clear, I don't support what we did in the Bush administration. I do hold us responsible for our collapse on Georgia. And that was a failure of the Bush administration. So I'm happy to happy to own that, happy to also own the president saying that he looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes and saw somebody he could work with. At the same time, let's be clear, right? Crimea was invaded in blatant violation of international law, annexed. We did nothing about it. We made a deal with the Russians to secure Syrian chemical weapons, and yet thousands and thousands of Syrians have died due to the chemicals that the Russians got out when the Obama administration whiffed on its own red line. Okay, so let's be clear about what the Obama administration did and didn't do on Russia. And so let's not be surprised. And this administration has been a complete train wreck and almost obsequious to Russia. So I'm not going to defend Republicans or Democrats on this issue, but let's not kid ourselves that, that, that the prior administration and this administration have been a thousand times worse disaster than the Bush administration ever was on everything related to Russia. All right, let's wrap up that topic and shift to the final topic, which is we'll go around the horn and talk about issues we're following that are not on the front page. I'll go first. A lot of people saw in the news a few years ago that there were huge liquid natural gas discoveries, LNG discoveries in the country of Mozambique. Mozambique, by many measures, is the poorest country in the world, less than $100 a day for people. This is potentially a transformative development in Mozambique. There are now 
insurgent attacks in the north of Mozambique against the facilities for the LNG project. There appear to be some linkages uh, to Islamic groups. There may be linkages to global terror networks. I'm a little skeptical of that, but this is yet another zone of instability with a lot of money at stake uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Dana. I am following the plight of Alexander Navalny, the leading Russian oppositionist who had traveled to Siberia to plan how to push back on Putin, since we were just talking about him um, and his long hold on power through pushing opposition leaders at the local level, uh, local councils, local government, etc. Navalny gets back on a plane to go back to Moscow and apparently collapses and becomes violently ill. The plane has to do an emergency landing. He goes into a coma in a hospital in Siberia and ultimately through advocacy of both Angela Merkel and Navalny's wife, the Germans send a plane to Siberia to get him, to bring him to a leading German medical research institution. And they just put out a finding in the last couple hours that he has in fact been poisoned. And so the question, of course, is who would desire to poison Navalny and who has a track record of using poison to take out dissidents and opposition voices? And the answer is Vladimir Putin. So if you need more damning evidence than actual medical professions concluding that this guy was poisoned, if the Trump administration and other European governments are silent after this, then I I just find it to be incredible and there needs to be a strong response. Yeah, uh, I'm following the uh, situation with the Iran arms embargo at the United Nations. Obviously, the Iranian arms embargo has been in place since 2010, so almost a decade. It's set to expire because of the Iran nuclear deal that we agreed to in 2015. This is obviously a crisis. Uh, The Iranians have been violating the uh, Iran nuclear deal since the beginning of the deal, and more importantly, have continued to do so in recent months after the Trump administration pulled out of the deal in 2018. And so this is a huge concern for the world. When the Trump administration went to the UN uh, to seek to extend the arms embargo ahead of time, ahead of its expiration in October. Amazingly, 11 of the 15 UN Security Council members uh, decided to take a pass. They abstained from voting. Uh, It's an embarrassment for our European allies who chose not to vote up or down on this issue. So now without action, uh, the arms embargo goes away. Now, luckily, the United States has the ability to snap back uh, these sanctions under the UN resolution. That's the relevant UN resolution. Not surprisingly, our opponents, Russia and China, And Iran, of course, are saying, well, the U.S. shouldn't get the benefit of this deal uh, because they had pulled out of the underlying agreement. But of course, the U.N. resolution itself doesn't turn on the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. It is its own separate thing. And the U.S. is completely compliant uh, with that resolution and as a result has the ability to snap back sanctions. We shall see what happens. But I keeping an eye on the fact that our European allies, even though, by the way, the British, the French and the Germans all said in January that Iran was in blatant violation of the nuclear deal. Uh, they can't seem to want to stand up to the uh, Iranians and keep the, in the the arms ban in place. Excellent. Well, since I have the final word and no one's going to interrupt me and tell me my time's up, I've got two that I'm following. One very close to home, still under the umbrella of national security and one very far away. Close to home, we have the hearings going on on the Hill both last Friday and today regarding the U.S. Postal Service and what is being done there. And I think following along in the spirit of developing strong democracy and free and fair elections. I'm very curious as that issue has played out. You know, there have been 
movements made by leadership of the Postal Service um, to remove sorting machines from various locations to remove mailboxes, to straight up take out mailboxes in places around the country. And I'm interested in seeing how all of that plays out to see whether or not that is something that actually impacts our ability during a pandemic to participate in an election. I think you have folks on one hand saying, absolutely, hands down, it does. And on the other side saying, it's inconvenient, but the Postal Service can manage. They're big, they're good. They've been doing this a long time. So interested to see how all that plays out. I'm sure there'll be some very interesting um, stories that come out of the hearings on the House side today, possibly already having come out. And The other issue that I'm following is a little bit farther away, but uh, according to NASA, we have a very large object, as, you know, space terms go, uh, hurtling towards Earth and set to pass its closest point to us on November 2nd, the day before Election Day. And not to fear, they say it is actually, as these things go, quite small and will likely not impact us. But given the fact that November 2nd is my birthday, and that is when the asteroid will be closest, and it's 2020, so really anything could happen. Definitely going to keep an eye on that guy, too. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Andy Young for research assistance, and of course, our producer and editor, Grant Haver, for all of his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.